This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, Breadline USA, The Hidden Scandal of American Hunger, our guest today, Sasha Abramsky, tells the stories of Americans in all types of communities who struggle to put any type of food on the table come the end of the month when money runs out and the social safety net isn't there to catch them. Abramsky's work has appeared in The Nation, The Atlantic Monthly, The Village Voice, and Rolling Stone. He's also the author of American Furies and Hard Time Blues, Sasha Abramsky, welcome to Weekly Signals. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm all right. How are you? I'm doing real well. Uh, uh, tell me, what got you into this book? What's the, uh, what's the impetus for you to write a book on, on hunger in America? Well, I was doing an awful lot of reporting on some of the economic and policy changes that were going on in the past 10 years or so, especially during the Bush presidency. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I kept finding was that I was interviewing people who didn't fit classic definitions of poverty. There there were people who had jobs. There were people who maybe always had jobs. Some of them were people who lived in fairly affluent neighborhoods. And yet they were telling me that there were things going on that meant they could no longer make ends meet. And I started traveling around the country talking to people. I started going to food banks, food pantries, and I found that there were a tremendous number of people who just couldn't juggle all their bills anymore. There were too many things going wrong with the economy. There were too many problems around housing and health care and all these other issues. And the, the thing that was giving at the end of each month was food, because you can't stop paying your mortgage unless you're willing to go into foreclosure. You can't stop putting gas in your car unless you're willing to not be able to drive to work. But you can give up on food at the end of the month, because when push comes to shove, there are these charities that will step in to give you, if not good food, at least food that will keep you alive. And th- this was the story I began uncovering in about 2005, 2006. The more work I did on it, the more I found this was an extraordinary story. And so I started working on a book, and the book is now out. Yes, yes. Um, Now, why do you suppose this isn't as as well-known as it should be? Uh, If there are people going hungry hungry in America, does that have something to do with our definition of poverty, of the government's definition of things? Uh, I think the reason that it isn't getting the attention it deserves is that we have a self-image of ourselves as a country as a sort of permanently affluent nation. And that, that, that self-image is obviously coming under challenge at the moment with the economic hard times. But generally, we have a storyline. And our storyline is that in America, if you try hard, you can succeed. In America, there's an abundance of food. There's an abundance of consumer durables and so on. And that's true. There is an abundance of food. We're not in a situation like Ethiopia 20 years ago where there literally was a failure of the crops and there was an entire population starving. The hunger that we have in this country in a sense, it's very little to do about food, and it's a lot to do about access. It's to do um, with the way the market functions, the way the market distributes money, the way the market distributes um, things like health care, pensions, the way the minimum wage works or doesn't work. And that's a complicated story. Um, Now, in my book, what I say is that hunger in America is very much a consequence rather than a cause. It's not the primary cause of all the problems, it's a symptom of bigger problems. It's a symptom of the fact that for 10 years the minimum wage wasn't raised. It's a symptom of the fact that there are an awful lot of people who are listed as being employed but who have had their hours cut during this recession. It's a symptom of the fact that there's an awful lot of people who don't have health insurance. So when their kids get sick, suddenly they're faced with a choice. 
Do I get medicine for my child or do I buy, do I buy food for the family? It's a symptom of the fact there are a lot of poor people who by last summer were spending a third of their income on gas for their cars when gas was spiking in California to 460, 470 a gallon. Um, and that's a complicated story. So I, I think that the reason more people aren't aware of this is that you can't really express it in a soundbite. And yet it's a big story. There's 32 million people on food stamps. There's another 10 million or so poor enough to qualify for food stamps, but who aren't on food stamps. And then there's many, many millions more who are deemed just a little bit too affluent for food stamps. But in reality, they're still living lives of poverty. And those are the guys who end up on food pantry lines at the moment. And also, isn't some of this have to do with um, when we have a system uh, around the country of volunteer shelters and and uh, people and providers of food for the the marginalized people in the country uh that you can get as you said you can get uh, some food you can get some you know subsistence uh from from what they distribute but i would assume that increasingly that system that volunteer system is under increasing pressure and will not sustain it well that that's absolutely right that if you go around the country in any city of any decent size, there are food banks. Um, in, in the town where I live, Sacramento, there's an enormous food bank in a poor part of town. And if you go to that food bank, it's open every day. And if you go an hour or so before the gates open, there's a line around the block of people waiting for their donated food. And that food is usually out-of-date yogurts, out-of-date milks. Um, yeah. It's usually you know low-end noodles, um, a lot of bread, a lot of out-of-date donuts, that sort of stuff. Um, now, there are a few problems with that model. One is that the food just isn't very good. It's not very nutritious. So it will keep you alive, but it won't necessarily keep you healthy. Second problem is it's a charity model, and it relies on donations. Now, as times get harder, more and more people need those services, Mm -hmm. and that's exactly when the donations start drying up because even the people above water, they're struggling to stay above water. So if they used to donate a bag of food a week, Maybe now they can only afford to donate a bag every other week, or maybe they can't afford to donate anything at all. So what you see is there are food food banks and food pantries where the amount of food available has just shriveled up, and the need has quadrupled in some cases. Now, you know, you you can talk about this in the abstract, and I I did a lot of research where I talked to people, and I, I got their stories, and I followed them around and found out what they were experiencing, how much they were living, and so on. But I also realized, you know, in a way, the story needs to be made more immediate. So one of the things that I did was at a certain point, I realized if I'm going to tell the story accurately, I've got to live this life for a while. So for a couple months while I was researching my book, I put myself on the, on the income of somebody who was earning a median McDonald's hourly wage in 2008. It was $8.23 an hour. And I talked to people. I said, look, if you're in that situation, you know, what, what do you tend to spend on rent each month? What do you tend to spend on your bare minimum car payments? What do you tend to spend on your bare minimum medical needs and so on? And I worked out exactly what kind of money I'd have left over afterwards. And that basically is my disposable income for food. And then I started tweaking the permutation. So I said, all right, if everything goes right, I have this amount of money to spend per week on food. But what happens if gasoline goes up a dollar a gallon? Mm-hmm. So I put that in. And I lived for a week with that added burden of an extra dollar a gallon on gas. And then I said, well, you know, in reality, people have emergencies in their life, unanticipated small expenses. What happens if I have a flat tire? I have to spend 10 or $20 getting a small car repair. So I did that. I took out $20 of my disposable income that, that, that time. And I kept tweaking these conditions. And what I found is that if things start going wrong, not very seriously wrong, if just one or two unanticipated expenses intrude, that McDonald's worker actually ends up with less to spend on food each week than someone who was unemployed and on food stamps. 
And that's the situation that millions and millions of Americans are now in. They're earning money. They're not deemed poor by the government. And yet they're in this poverty trap where they just cannot afford to pay for basic necessities like food. And, right. and that's an extraordinary story. We're speaking with Sasha Bramsky. The, the, the book is uh, Breadline USA, The Hidden Scandal of American Hunger and How to Fix It. Uh, you mentioned, uh, I, you know, the funny thing is you mentioned a McDonald's wage. Uh, one, of, one of the things that I've had people point out to me when I've talked about hunger in America is that, well, look, you can go in and get a burrito for 99 cents. You can get, you know, you can get your happy meal for a couple of bucks. Uh, there shouldn't be anybody starving in America, but isn't that kind of a deal with the devil? Aren't we, by eating these kind of nutritionally v- uh, vapid meals, eventually going to create a situation where you've got a lot of people dealing with health issues that may not have... That, 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 that's exactly right. And, you know, again, when, when we're talking about food and hunger issues in this country, we're not talking about starvation. There isn't a starvation epidemic in this country. Yeah. What there is is a food anxiety academic, epidemic, people who are really anxious about how they're going to afford their meals at the end of the week or how they're going to pay for their kids to eat. Yeah. There are people who send their kids to school hungry, knowing those kids are then going to get a free breakfast at school and a free lunch at school. And then they come home and there's no food in the pantry and they eat maybe a little bit of dry cereal. I spoke to a lot of children in that situation. Now, again, those kids aren't going to starve, but they're going to have enough anxieties about food that it's going to impact their daily lives. And you're absolutely right that, in a sense, the cheapest, most easily available, quickest kind of food to get is junk food or fast food. That's the stuff that gives you a sort of quick energy rush. It's high calorie. The problem is it's not healthy. And so, you know, one of the things we find in this country is that an awful lot of people who are poor end up with obesity problems. And it's not because they want to be eating junk food. It's because that's the cheapest food and it's the easiest and most accessible food. If you don't have a car, you can't really go out to sort of farmer's markets on the edge of town. You can't go out to the countryside to buy cheap, fresh vegetables. You buy what's close and what's convenient and near your home and isn't going to take a lot of time to prepare. And unfortunately, in this country, that is fast food and it is junk food. You know what I call, I call fast food? I call it false food. False food. Yeah, and and uh, it, it yeah. So it yeah, I agree. I mean, you're right. And and also another side of this, which is the, without getting too far afield on on the discussion of food production in in America, but oftentimes this fast food is highly subsidized food, which is a lot, where a lot of money is going that we spend in the agri the agribusiness is going into subsidizing the production of the you know one dollar burger. That's right. And, you know, people like Michael Pollan have written quite heavily on this, that yeah. there, there is this problem that the kind of foods that are cheapest in this country tend to be the kind of foods that are least good for you. And those tend to be the kind of foods which are very high on corn, which is subsidized by our agricultural policy. So it's a, it's a sort of circle of dysfunction. Well, it's robbing um, Peter to pay Paul in a way, isn't it? In a sense, <laughs> you're, you're just kind of, you're, we're, we're spending money as a society to produce cheaper food when it seems to me we should just produce better food and we'd all be better off for it. Well, I think part of this is we don't think holistically. So we think, you know, we can produce this cheap food all well and good. And then we don't think about the fact that in producing that cheap food, we're stocking up a series of health costs down the road for people, which society ends up generally picking up the tab for. Um, Or we're stocking up a series of um, problems that will make our workforce less effective because it's unhealthy. Um, so we, we aren't thinking holistically about the overall societal costs of our food production distribution systems. Um, and I think we need to. I think this is a big enough problem. It impacts enough people, and it has enough entry points that this is a big enough problem that we need to really start thinking outside the box about how to fix it. 
We're speaking with Sasha Abramsky. The book is Breadline USA, The Hidden Scandal of American Hunger. And, and you mentioned uh, increasing the minimum wage. H- how much of an impact would that have if, if we were just to tie it to a uh, cost of living? And would, would that solve most it, of the situation? It, it, w- it wouldn't solve most of it, but it would be a very significant impact. And the reason for that is that poor people generally spend their extra money. If you want to actually stimulate the economy, it's much more effective to put cash in the pocket of poorer people than to give a tax cut to wealthy people. If you give a tax cut to wealthy people, generally it goes into savings or it goes into um, offshore accounts, etc. If you give a tax cut to poorer people, they spend it because what it does is it allows them to spend more on basic necessities. Now, the minimum wage is going to have an impact on two levels. The first of them is just the people impacted directly by the minimum wage. And there are many, many millions of people whose jobs are essentially minimum wage jobs. And at the federal level, for 10 years, that was just over $5 an hour. It's now up to about 6 or 7 an hour. And then in some states, it's a bit higher. In California, I think it's $8 an hour. That's the highest in the country. So anyone who is pegged to the minimum wage is going to get an immediate boost if you, if you raise the minimum wage and if you peg the minimum wage to the um, cost of living so that when inflation goes up, minimum wage goes up, as it does with Social Security, as it does with food stamps. But then there's a whole group above that who are also going to benefit. When I talked about the $8.23 an hour McDonald's worker, or when you look at people in my book who are working for Walmart, who are earning $8, $9, $10 an hour, those are not minimum wage jobs. In fact, they're oftentimes marketed to potential employees as being X number of dollars above the minimum wage. So McDonald's or Walmart can say, look, we, we, we're, we're good employees, we're good employers. We pay 2 or $3 an hour above the minimum wage. Well, if you raise the minimum wage for McDonald's and Walmart to remain competitive for that, for that group of employees, they've also got to raise their wage to stay that much above the minimum. So you have this sort of staggered effect. You, you affect the people at the very bottom of the economy, and then you affect the people in the next tier up. And that creates a tremendous catalyst for extra spending at the bottom of the economy. And a lot of that spending will go on buying enough food for families so that people don't end up on food bank and food pantry lines. So it's this sort of virtuous cycle, if you like. It, it puts money in the right pockets, and that money is then spent in the right way. Now, about the, the food stamp system that we have here in the country, you mentioned that earlier, too. Is, is that helping at all is it successful uh, or is there things we can do to cha- are things we can do to change it uh, uh all of the above it, it, <laughs> it, 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 it is actually one of the most successful parts of our social safety net in fact it's one of the only parts of our social safety net that's expanded and remained intact over the last few decades um it's a great program what it does is it says if you're below a certain income level the government recognizes you're going to have problems feeding your family, and the government's going to step in with a certain amount of money per person in the family per week, and it's going to be devoted specifically to food, and it's going to come in the form of food stamps so it can't be spent on anything else. Now, that's a great program. The, the, the things that are wrong with it, one, it's too strict in terms of its qualification criteria, so there are an awful lot of people who in real life are poor, and yet, according to the calculations done by the government, for eligibility, they're deemed just a little bit too affluent. And that's a real poverty trap. So one thing that I would advocate very strongly is finding a way to eliminate that poverty trap so that the people at the bottom of the economy don't have a sort of perverse incentive to not work. You you want people to be employed, and yet if they need help, to have the ability to access that help. The second thing that's wrong with it is an awful lot of people who do qualify simply don't apply. And it's done at a state-by-state level. Different states have different criteria for application different paperwork that you have to fill in. 
Some states you have to fill it in once every few months. Some states it's once every month or two, and that's very, very time-consuming. A state like California, you have to be fingerprinted. And even though, in theory, there's no relationship between the food stamp application and law enforcement or immigration enforcement, it scares people. A lot of people are suspicious of authority, and just having to go in for a fingerprint is enough to um, move them away from applying for food stamps. And that hurts them. More importantly, it hurts their children. Their children have no say in this matter, yet they end up hungry at the end of the week. So I think, you know, in answer to your question, it's a great program. It needs to be, if anything, expanded, and its application process needs to be simplified. Now, that said, we've got 32 million Americans on food stamps at the moment. That's a record, and it's been going up every month almost for the last 18 months. So the long-term answer is clearly not to just have tens of millions of people permanently reliant on the government for food aid. The long-term answer is to stimulate the economy and to produce systems like universal health care, to produce systems like a protected pension system, to raise the minimum wage, to do all the things that we've talked about so that fewer people actually need food stamps in the first place. That, that's the only viable long-term solution to this problem. So 32 million people are on food stamps. That is a staggering amount of people, and it only looks like it's going to uh, continue to, to go up as the, uh, as the economy will lurch back and forth here for the next who knows how long. That's right, and I think one of the things we're finding and one of the things we're going to find, and I, I'm sure a lot of your listeners can empathize with this, is that we're finding a tremendous number of people who've never, ever accessed private charity or government assistance before who are finding that this recession is qualitatively different, that this isn't like the ones we've had in the early 90s or in the early 2000s or even in the early Reagan era. This is a recession that's much, much deeper, much, much wider, and it can impact people's finances that much more suddenly if they go into foreclosure, if they suddenly lose a job and lose their health insurance that comes with it. Well, in, in, just anecdotally, uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm friends with some people who run a, uh, a homeless shelter in Santa Ana, California here, the Catholic Worker. And uh, over a year ago, uh, the, pe- the couple who run it told me that they're seeing a qualitative difference in the people who are showing up at their door, that it's a very different kind of pe- uh, crowd of now, these aren't the people who are drug addicted or have mental issues. These are people that not long ago were working in uh, white-collar jobs. That, that's exactly right. And, you know, one of the things that I find so interesting about stories like this is that we know about these older pockets of poverty. And it doesn't make those pockets any less serious. It doesn't make them any less devastating for the people impacted. But in a way, it makes the story more understandable. We know about mental illness. We know about the long-term homeless. We know that there are certain regions of the country, like parts of Appalachia, parts of the Mississippi Delta, which historically have been very impoverished. Now, in and of themselves, those are terrible stories. But this is a newer story. This is, as you said, the story of people who, until the very recent past, considered themselves white-collar or considered themselves middle-class or considered themselves in a relatively stable financial relationship. And suddenly, the pillars have been pulled out from under, their, under, the, under these people's lives. And these are the ones who are suddenly finding themselves on food bank lines. These are the ones who are suddenly finding themselves desperately seeking help to avoid losing their homes. And that has a host of implications, policy implications, um, societal implications, implications about how we organize as a community. And I think, you know, that in a sense is the story that will dominate our lives for the next many, many years. Well, well, Sasha, we're talking, I mean, you know, not to be too provincial about this, but we're talking about Orange County, California. Okay, (laughs) I mean, this this is not a county or an area of the country where you think that that, that this is that this is ever going to happen? I mean, I, I've lived here for a long time, and it, we seem to be 
impervious to these kinds of things, but it does seem to be happening. By their account, it seems to be happening more and more. So, I, I, you know, I, I think that's true, and you know, you're, you're right. We our image of Orange County is certainly not poverty. Our no. nationally, our image of Orange County is probably Disneyland, and that's that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, no, it is. That, but, it is. Yeah. You know, when when people think of. I, the words Orange County, they tend to think of affluence. No, and I, I don't mean to imply that this is some, you know, this is a pandemic here, but it, the fact that it's beginning to become more and more regular and normal, quote-unquote, uh, for that. Now, you've written a number of books. You've written Hard Times and Conned and American Furies about the American judicial system and the lack thereof. Um, d- are we going to begin to see, because of this situation with food and poverty and minimum wage and uh, this... This is all part of the same sort of nexus, is is it? Yeah, right? I mean, I, I I sort of have a somewhat bleak vision of the world, I guess. <laughs> I hate to admit it, but I, yeah, for me, I find it most interesting to explore tales of dysfunction. Um, I, it just it, it sort of gives me more to write about, in a sense. I, you know, I guess my sensibility is a bit like the photographer Diane Arbus. I like looking for the sort of slightly weird, the slightly bizarre and then teasing out the implications of that. And I think, you know, what you said about this nexus is actually true, that, you know, we've spent 20, 25 years spending an extraordinary amount of money locking people up. Um, Every state in the country basically has gone through this this societal change. It's had tremendous fiscal implications. And we're seeing that here in California. We we have a correctional budget of $10 billion a year. We have 175,000 people in prison. And we have a budget crisis in California, the likes of which we've never seen before. Right. And one of the things that's going to happen is, in order to get the budget in order, we're going to have to start releasing an awful lot of people from prison, cutting a lot of services for drug treatment, for vocational training in prison. We're going to have to start firing correctional officers. This is all in the government's plan at the moment. Um, now, once you do that, once you dump a whole bunch of people who've been incarcerated for a long time into already depressed, already struggling communities, and then you cut back money for law enforcement, and then you cut back money for drug treatment, and then you cut back county mental health services, and so on. Well, and you take away the safety net almost completely. Well, you, you take away the safety net, but you do something beyond that. You send out a signal, and the sing- signal that California seems to be sending out at the moment is we're withdrawing our responsibility for a whole host of um social issues that we used to have a stake in. Mm -hmm. And if you start sending out that signal, it's sort of the reverse of broken windows theory. What you're doing is you're saying, look, we don't want to do it, but we're having to abandon our commitment to societal safety. We're having to abandon our commitment to helping the mentally ill and getting the mentally ill into the treatment they need. We're having to abandon our commitment to drug treatment. Now, we know just from history that that's going to have bad consequences. We don't know exactly what those consequences are, but we know it's not a good set of um, events to come together all at once. Um, and, I, I, you know, I think what we're going to see in the coming years is that people who can afford it are increasingly going to rely on the private system for their security needs and their safety needs and their educational needs. And even, you know, even, you know of course, their health needs. All, all, all these things are going to be privatized to an ever greater extent if California can't get its budget in order. And the people who are poorer, who can't afford private security systems, people who can't afford private health insurance, the people who can't afford private schooling, they're going to suffer because the state essentially is saying we can't provide the level of services that we used to provide and that you expect. And they're going to suffer in a way that's going to profoundly alter the way our society functions. Hunger is going to be one of the manifestations. If we take away the cash welfare, which the governor's talking about, you're going to have an awful lot of people sliding from poverty into outright destitution. And if that happens, hunger goes up. 
private charities get even more stressed, even more over-relied on. So I think it has a cascading series of implications. And you're right, the sort of crime, poverty, hunger nexus, it does start coming together. Well, in, in about a minute, can you get, get, can you show us a way out? Is this is this is this a is this a is this a New Deal kind of opportunity? Yeah, is, 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 I mean, basically, this is an opportunity to think big yeah, because the yeah. only way you could do this is to work out the connections. You, the only way you can do this is to sort of think of hunger as a problem associated with healthcare, let's say, or associated with the minimum wage, and then try and work out institutional solutions to that. So I think it, it's a New Deal opportunity. It also involves a tremendous amount of imagination at county, state, and federal level because all of those levels of government are financially stressed. And yet they've got to find some way to spread the dollars in a way that impacts poverty more effectively than we're doing at the moment. Okay. <laughs> well, at the I mean, let's get the whole title. It says, uh, you know, Breadline USA, The Hidden Scandal of American Hunger and How to Fix It. And thank you for fixing that, uh, Sasha. So, uh, no, thank you for the book and thank you for being here again. Uh, it's, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Uh, the, the, as I said, the book is Breadline USA. At, and uh, Sasha Abramsky, thank you for being here. Thank you. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals. <laughs>